Having been in the pastorate for over 42 years, I have officiated at many, many funerals. And so when someone in our church is asked for the first time to officiate at a funeral, it's, they often turn to me and ask my advice on how to lead such a service. I want to know things like, well, what do I say? What do I not say? What do I do if the deceased is an unbeliever? What do I say and do if the deceased is a believer, but family members are non-Christians? How do I handle this? So I try to answer their questions by telling them how I've conducted services at funerals before years and years. And one of the things I sometimes do to help them is I give them my notes from a funeral that I've done in the past. In other words, I I give them a copy of one of my funeral sermons, of which I have many. And the reason they often find this helpful is because there are no recorded funeral sermons in the Bible, none at all, and certainly none that Jesus ever gave. You can search all you want. You will never find anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus delivered a sermon at a funeral. And there's a perfectly good reason for this. It's because whenever Jesus attended a funeral, he stopped it. He stopped it by raising the deceased from the dead. He gave them life. There was no reason to continue the funeral. This morning, as we return to our study of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to look at one of those times that Jesus broke up a funeral by restoring someone back to life. The occasion I'm referring to is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen, Amongst us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Now, this incident, this event is recorded only here in the Gospel of Luke. Neither Matthew or Mark or John mention it. However, you should know it isn't the only time that we read in the New Testament that Jesus ever raised someone from the dead. Two other times we read that Jesus raised an individual back to life who had previously been dead. Namely, the daughter of a man by the name of Jairus, and as you'll recall, his good friend, the Lord's good friend, Lazarus, John chapter 11. And though it's certainly true that all deaths are painful, all deaths are sorrowful. What makes the death we read about here in Luke chapter 7 especially sad, especially just heartbreaking, is that the man who died, we read, was the only son of his widowed mother. Meaning what? Meaning that this woman now had no one to provide for her, no one to protect her. In other words, without a husband and now without her son, This woman had no means of financial support and no one to look after her. She was essentially alone in this world. 
You see, in that day and culture, the government did not step in and provide resources for widows, and there were limited opportunities for a woman to earn a living. In addition, the death of her only son also meant the end of her family line, which was a tragic thing in Israel. Your line just ended, and all the inheritance with it. So this was a funeral of deep sorrow, a funeral of incredible grief that Jesus came upon. In fact, in ancient Israel, the death of an only son brought such anguish of soul that Old Testament biblical writers often used the expression mourning for an only son to convey the deepest of pains, the deepest of, of griefs, incredible anguish. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 26, the prophet Jeremiah, in announcing that God was sending the Babylonians to judge Israel, said this. He said, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth, roll in ashes, mourn as for an only son, a lamentation most bitter, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. Mourn Israel as for an only son. Amos says basically the same thing, Amos 8.10. He said, then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation, and I'll bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head, and I will make it like a time of mourning as for an only son. But of all the horrible things that Israel has ever gone through, the most grief-stricken time in her history, without question, will be the time when God takes away her spiritual blindness. This will be in the tribulation period. God takes away her blindness and she realizes for the very first time as a nation that she has rejected and murdered her own Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that time of distress is also compared to the mourning as of an only son. Zechariah 12.10 says these now, famous words, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, that's the Lord himself, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they'll weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Can you imagine when Israel recognizes he was here and we murdered him? They'll mourn like one mourns for an only son. And folks, this was the type of anguish, anguish mourning taking place at the funeral procession of a poor widow's only son that Luke tells us that Jesus came upon. But what the Lord did in response to this heartbreaking funeral, and the primary reason Luke even tells us about this event, reveals to us some wonderful truths about Jesus that what? That declare his deity. That's what this passage is about, declaring his deity. Luke tells us in revealing these things to us that Christ is not only human, he's also divine. He is God, fully man, fully God. In fact, it seems rather clear that Luke's intended message here is to declare the deity of Jesus, because you'll notice if you look at your at the passage, you notice in verse 13 Something that, that you probably don't realize you haven't seen before in Luke's gospel. You'll see in this verse that 
Luke calls Jesus Lord. He says, when the Lord saw her. Now, this may not seem particularly important to you because we often these days refer to Jesus as Lord. Nothing new about that. But it may surprise you to know that this is the very first time in Luke's gospel narrative that he personally, Luke, the writer, has referred to Jesus as the Lord. Now, Luke has recorded other people calling Jesus Lord prior to this, but this is the first time that Luke has called him Lord. Commenting on the significance of this, the late great theologian R.C. Sproul said this. He said this is the first time in Luke's gospel that he calls Jesus Kyrios. That means Lord. That's the Greek word for Lord, Kyrios. He says this title translates the Old Testament title Adonai, meaning my sovereign one the one who rules over all things with all authority and all power. The title that was reserved for God is now given to the Son of God, who is God incarnate. Now, it's obvious from reading this story that Jesus, the Prince of Life, is Lord over death because by his divine power, he raised this widow's son back to life, something that only God can do. Only God can give life. Only God can take life. But in looking at the, the big picture, the whole story as Luke presents it, we see several ways, not just one, but several ways, some more subtle than others, but nevertheless conclusive, that Christ's actions in relation to this widow and her dead son, they all declare his deity. With the first one being this, he sovereignly arranged this encounter. He sovereignly arranged this encounter. We break in at verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as Luke sets the scene for this miracle that's about to take place, he tells us that soon afterwards, Jesus went to a city called Nain. The question is, soon after what? Now, the words soon afterwards are a reference to the previous miracle that Luke just told us Jesus did. Now, we've had several months of a little break between our studies and Luke. But if you'll recall, the last miracle that we read about from Luke's gospel was that Jesus healed a Roman centurion's servant. The servant was was ill unto death, and Jesus healed him with just speaking a word. And so what we're being told here is that soon after this miracle the miracle of healing the centurion's slave, perhaps just a few days later, that Jesus decided to travel to a town called Nain, accompanied by his disciples, as well as a large crowd, no doubt made up of thrill seekers who were impressed by his miracles. Now, this is the only time in all the Bible that the town of Nain is mentioned. It's really not not even a town, it's not a city, it's, it's a village. It was a small, nondescript village. It was located about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum, which is where Jesus was traveling from, which would then make this trip uh, about a day's journey. Now, on the surface, there doesn't seem to be anything terribly significant about what Luke is telling us. Soon after, Jesus healed the centurion slave, He left Capernaum along with his disciples and a large crowd, and he traveled 20 miles southwest to the small village of Nain. That's essentially what we see in this opening verse. However, when we consider the broader picture 
the broader picture that the New Testament paints about Jesus and his movements throughout Israel, it's clear that our Lord never went anywhere on a whim. None of his journeys were rash or impulsive. He never traveled anywhere due to thoughtless spontaneity. Instead, every movement, every journey, every trip were all in line with the predetermined sovereign plan of God. In other words, wherever Jesus went and encountered people, those were divine appointments, divine encounters, sovereignly predetermined and arranged by him for the purpose of accomplishing the will of God. For example, in John chapter 4, we read about the time that Jesus had a conversation with the woman at the well a Samaritan woman. And he did this for the purpose of revealing to her that he was the Jewish Messiah. Though she was a Samaritan, she still believed in the Messiah. He revealed to her that I who speak to you am he. And ultimately, her faith in him would lead to many in her Samaritan village coming to believe in Jesus as well. But what is significant about this encounter with this woman is that it was not a chance meeting. It wasn't by coincidence that they just ran into each other. He didn't run into her by accident. It was an encounter that Jesus had ordained to happen, and he brought it about by providence, not a miracle, but providence, meaning he sovereignly controlled all the mundane details to make this a reality. This is why we read in John chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he left Judea and went again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now notice that. John says he had to pass through Samaria. But if you look on a map of Israel, you'll plainly see there were other routes that Jesus could have taken to get to Galilee. He didn't, in a geographical sense, have to pass through Samaria. Not at all. But he did have to go through Samaria in order to meet and then bring this woman to faith in him. In that sense, he had to do that. And he did it by sovereignly arranging this meeting, this divine appointment. Why? Because he is divine. And folks, he is still still sovereignly orchestrating all of the events of life, your life, my life, everyone's life, so that there are no chance meetings. There are no lucky encounters. There's no fortunate occurrences of I was in the right place at the right time. None of that. There's only Jesus the Lord controlling all of the events of your life while using the ordinary rather than the miraculous to bring about his will for your life. And listen to what we read in Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now think about what we're being told. Even before you were born, God saw you, knew all about you, and planned each and every day of your life. Not just how many days you would live, but all the events of all the days that he ordained for you to live. Sovereignly ordaining and then controlling everything down to the, the tiniest details of what would happen to you on any given day 
until the day that you die. And that's exactly what we see in this encounter with the funeral procession of this widow's only son in the town of, of Nain. Writing about how Jesus controls all circumstances, John MacArthur said this about the Lord traveling to Nain. He said, circumstances that perhaps had not yet happened when Jesus and his entourage began the day's journey from Capernaum to Nain would be in place to set up an amazing display of Jesus' divine power. When they set out, neither the apostles, the rest of Jesus' disciples, nor the thrill-seeking crowd knew why they were going to Nain or what they would see when they got there. In fact, the young man may not yet have died since Jewish custom dictated that the funeral and burial take place soon after death. But Jesus knew and made this journey to an off-the-beaten-path village because it was God's plan that he encounter a funeral procession there. But listen, I want you to understand, not only was Jesus in obedience following God's plan, but being divine himself, he was also composing, coordinating, and controlling all of the details and timing that led to this encounter with this funeral procession. This is not by accident. As Luke continues unfolding the story, he tells us a second way that Jesus declared his deity in relation to the funeral. First, he declared it, as we said, by sovereignly orchestrating this encounter. It is a subtle truth, but it is a truth nonetheless that Jesus ordained it all. And now we see him declaring his deity by secondly demonstrating his divine compassion. Verse 12. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Now, Luke tells us that as Jesus drew near the gate of the city in order to enter the city, there was a funeral procession going on, going in the exact opposite direction, going out of the city, in which the body of the only son of a poor widow was being carried on what we would refer to something like a, a portable stretcher. It, it says a coffin, but it's not an exact coffin as we think of it. A uh, coffin today is closed. This, is, this was not. It was like a portable stretcher. And why was this dead man's body being carried out of the city? Well, it's very simple. It was being carried out of the city because in ancient Israel, burials were always done outside of the city limits, never inside the city, and they did this in order to avoid ritualistic defilement. Now Luke says that joining this widow in the funeral procession was a large crowd of people from the city of Nain, and the fact that Luke doesn't mention any other children that this, this woman had as being a part of this large crowd would seem to indicate that she had no other children, otherwise it would only make sense for Luke to say her children they were there as well. Already then, without her husband, now she's lost her only child to death with no offspring to care for her. What a sad picture. There's nothing here but sorrow and misery. A tearful widow, tearful widow, leading the funeral procession of her dead son, followed by a large crowd from the city, which would have included friends, 
neighbors, musicians, and wailing women who were professional mourners since they were always a part of every Jewish funeral. Now, as you know, all funerals are mournful events because even when a believer dies at a ripe old age, an advanced age, and we know they're with the Lord and we're so glad for them, we still mourn, we still grieve because we miss them. There's no getting around that. But the death of a child takes mourning to another level of distress. It's an unparalleled agony, something every parent fears. Somebody said that the death of a child is like a period before a sentence ends. It is. It's, it's unnatural. It's the most miserable thing one can face in this world. But that's exactly what this widow from Nain was facing, the tragic misery of losing her only son on top of having previously lost her husband and now being all alone, all alone in this world with no one to support her, no one to care for her, no one to protect her. And we know that death is horrible. As I said, it's, it's full of misery. It's full of anguish. In the book of Job, death is referred to as the king of terrors. The apostle Paul said it is the last enemy, but it is an enemy. It's important for us to remind ourselves where death and the misery that follows death, where, where it comes from, its source. It didn't come from God. It doesn't come from God. It came from sin. In his commentary on Luke, Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote this about the source of death and what to, what to think about it. He said, there's not an item in the whole story which is not full of misery. And all this misery was brought into the world by sin. God did not create sin at the beginning when he made all things very good. Sin is the cause of it all. Sin entered into the world when Adam fell, and so death spread to all men, Romans 5, 12. He says, let us never forget this great truth. The world around us is full of sorrow, sickness and pain and infirmity and poverty and labor and trouble abound on every side. From one end of the world to the other, the history of families is full of lamentation and weeping and mourning and woe. And from where does it all come? Sin is the fountain and root to which all must be traced. There would have been neither tears nor tears nor illness nor deaths nor funerals in the earth if there had been no sin. We must bear this sinful and sorrowful state of things patiently. We cannot alter it. We may thank God that there is a remedy in the gospel and that this present life is not all there is. But in the meantime, let us lay the blame at the right door. Let us lay the blame on sin. How much we ought to hate sin. Instead of loving it, cleaving to it, dallying with it, excusing it, or playing with it, we ought to hate it with a deadly hatred. Sin is the great murderer and thief and pestilence and nuisance of this world. Let us make no peace with it. Let us wage a ceaseless warfare against it. It is the abominable thing which God hates. Happy is he who is of one mind with God and can say, I abhor that which is evil, Romans 12.9. So I ask you, do you hate sin? You should. You should because it's responsible for every evil in the world and every evil that you've encountered and will encounter. It's responsible for the death of your loved ones. Sin is responsible for destroying lives. It's responsible for ending marriages. It's responsible for killing friendships. Sin is responsible for stealing your joy. It's responsible for all of the lies, cheating, and corruption that permeate our world. 
Knowing this, sin, because of its destructive nature, knowing what you know, sin should be hated. Sin should be avoided. Rather than being loved and enjoyed, we should despise sin. It is a thief, a murderer, a liar. It destroys. Therefore, when you think of death and the misery that accompanies death, don't be angry at God. Be angry at sin because sin caused this misery, not God. And so Lucas told us that Jesus, drawing near then to the town of Nain, he sees this very sad funeral procession moving through the city gate as he's about to enter the gate. And what does he do? He does what one would expect God to do because he is God. He shows this woman divine compassion. We read in verse 13, When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. We read that Jesus, seeing this dear bereaved mother, he felt compassion for her. And this compassion that Luke tells us Jesus felt for this grieving mom, it's more folks than just a light, momentary feeling of pity and sympathy. Oh, isn't that a shame? It's too bad. Nothing else. No, that's not at all the compassion that our Lord had. See, the Greek word that's translated compassion figuratively refers to what's inside of our bodies, our heart, our lungs, our liver. And it's referred to this way because of the effect that our emotions have upon the inner parts of our bodies. In other words, the thought here is that Jesus, upon seeing this grieving widow and mother was so emotionally moved with compassion that he actually, note this, he felt it in his gut. He felt it inside. He felt it in his gut. The Bible, though, is even more descriptive of our Lord's compassion, the compassion that he, he felt more than just in his gut. That's part of it. But listen to these meaningful words from Kent Hughes, who writes, we should note that this was typical of Jesus, Later, at a similar occasion, when Jesus observed Mary and Martha weeping for Lazarus, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, John eleven thirty three. The word translated was deeply moved comes from an ancient word describing a horse's snorting. It indicates that the Lord let out an involuntary gasp. The breath just went out of him. Jesus felt for the two sisters so much that he had a physical reaction, and his convulsive feeling gave way to tears. When he saw the widow of Nain, Jesus was again inwardly convulsed with compassion, felt it with his gut, breathed out a heavy sigh. That's our Lord. Now you may wonder, how does the fact that Jesus felt compassion for a grieving mother declare his, his deity? Lots of people have compassion for those who are hurting. It doesn't mean that they're God, and that's true, absolutely true. But the compassion of Christ was unique and extraordinary because it was compassion that was not affected in any way by sin or selfishness so that he was able to care about this woman with a heart that was pure and therefore unhindered in any way, by any sinful focus on himself, which is something, quite frankly, we're incapable of doing. Even our best attempts at being compassionate and sympathetic towards someone else, they're always tainted by our sinful motives in one way or another, never pure, 
never sinless. See, the compassion that Jesus felt for this grieving woman, it was pure. It was without sin, expressing the compassion that the Bible says God has for those who are suffering, those who are hurting. For example, Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That is our God. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. Let me read that again. The Lord's loving kindnesses, plural, indeed never cease. His compassions, plural, never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the New Testament is very clear in presenting Jesus as a merciful high priest who being human himself sympathizes with our sufferings and weaknesses. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. This means we have a high priest who does sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, here's the writer's conclusion in light of the fact that Jesus understands all of your weaknesses, all of your struggles. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, because Jesus is God, he has all the divine attributes All the attributes of God, because he is God, and that includes the attribute of pure, untainted compassion for hurting and suffering sinners. And that's why we see him constantly displaying his compassion throughout the New Testament in his dealings with people who were in pain. So, for example, we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 41, about this hurting leper who came up to Jesus, and we read, a leper came to him, beseeching him, falling on his knees before him, saying, If you're willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I'm willing, be cleansed. And it was his compassion that moved him to heal other people who were diseased and they were suffering because Matthew 14, 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. That's why the Lord did this. Yes, it declared that he was the Messiah, Those miracles showed that he was the Messiah, but in addition to that, he healed because he loved these people, and this was his compassion coming through. It's important for you to know that your Lord still has a heart of compassion and that he sees you in your pain and in your anguish, just as he saw this widowed mother in her pain and anguish, and his heart of compassion goes out to you. He is not aloof. He's not ignorant of what you're going through. But more than simply having a heart of compassion, Jesus actually does something to help us in our pain. In other words, he doesn't just say, oh, that's too bad. He actually does something to minister to us. His compassion moves him, note this, to comfort us. Comfort us. Going back to Luke chapter 7, I want you to notice what we read immediately following the statement that Jesus felt compassion for this woman. Verse 13. Notice what we read. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. Now watch this. And said to her, do not weep. Listen closely. By telling this woman 
not to weep. Jesus wasn't rebuking her. He wasn't rebuking her for crying, nor was he telling her to suppress her emotions and, oh, just, just suck it up and be strong even though your heart is breaking. That would be cold and callous. That's not our Lord. Now, you see what Jesus was telling her, and the point is he was speaking to her. His word is what brought comfort. He spoke to her in a voice that no doubt expressed great tenderness and soothing comfort, something to the effect of, dear woman, you no longer need to cry because I'm about to do something to take away your tears. But before we see what Jesus did to dry her tears, I want you to know that the primary way that God demonstrates his compassionate comfort to us today is by speaking to us, not verbally, We don't have Jesus here in the flesh to speak to us, but he speaks to us from his inerrant inspired word, the Bible. Just as Jesus spoke to this woman to bring comfort to her, so he still brings comfort to us by speaking words that comfort us from his word, the Bible, the scriptures. Listen to what scripture tells us about God's word comforting us. I love this. Psalm 94 verse 19. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. It hits home. It's even clearer as it's translated in the ESV. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Psalm 119, 28. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. Psalm 119 verse 143, trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. In 2 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul, as I read earlier to you, refers to God as the God of all comfort, the Father of, of mercies. And here's what he said about him and the comfort that God offers us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now watch this. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul says that God comforts us in all of our afflictions. And we know the way he does this is by teaching us from his word. It's his word that comforts us. And his word informs us of just such incredibly comforting, encouraging truths such as trials build character, steadfastness, perseverance. There's a reason for your trial. A truth that God sovereignly uses all things to work for your good. The truth that he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you no matter what you're going through. The truth that he invites you to cast all of your burdens upon him because he cares for you. I recently heard a sermon in which the speaker said, this expression, he cares for you, means this. You mean a lot to him. You mean a lot to him. What a precious truth. The truth that though death is painful, for a believer in Christ, you have heaven, eternity, to look forward to, to be with Jesus, and the reunion in glory with your loved ones. First few days and weeks after my recent heart surgery, they were very, very difficult for me. Not only was I in pain and feeling very weak, as weak as I have ever felt, 
But I also struggled with melancholy that would tend to hit me at nighttime. Now, a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine who had recently had the same surgery, he warned me that this could happen because he told me whenever there is surgery on the heart, it seems to affect the brain by bringing on melancholy and depression, and he was right. So the way that I combated this downheartedness, this melancholy that would tend to settle over me just at nighttime was by taking comfort in the truths of God's word. Each night, Michelle would read to me from a book by Johnny Erickson Tata, dealing with pain and suffering and what God has to say about the pain and suffering. And while in bed, I would read from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' classic book, Spiritual Depression, which he addresses the various forms of, of depression that believers struggle with and their biblical solutions. That's how I combated this, the truth of God's word. Pretty much every night, melancholy would come and then be gone in the morning. It's, it's not there any, anymore, but, but I understood that the comfort God offers is found in his word. So listen, Jesus comforts us by the truths of his word, but he doesn't do it automatically. You have to go to your Bibles. You have to open them up. You have to make an effort to read the word letting his word minister comfort to you by personally applying it to your life. You have to receive it. You have to put it into practice. You have to apply specific truths to your specific situation. And then, according to 2 Corinthians 1, once you have been comforted with God's word, you'll be able then to pass that comforting truth from the word onto some other believer who's presently going through suffering and pain. This is how it works. But it all starts when you let his consolations minister to your hurting heart. And that's exactly what Jesus did with this weeping mother from the town of Nain. He brought her comfort by speaking to her, telling her that she didn't need to cry anymore because he was going to do something to turn her sorrow into joy. And as Luke continues his narrative, he tells us exactly what Jesus did. In doing so, he reveals to us a third way that Jesus declared his deity in relation to the funeral of this widow's son. So having already told us that he declared his deity by sovereignly arranging this encounter and by demonstrating his divine comfort, now we see the Lord declaring his deity by raising this woman's son up from the dead. Verses 14 and 15. Notice. And he came and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, having just told this weeping mother that she could dry her tears because she didn't need to weep any longer, the Lord now shows her what he was talking about. Why? Approaching the funeral couch of her son, which, as I said previously, would have been open, not a closed casket, but open. Jesus then did something that, that shocked everyone. It stunned everyone at this funeral, including the pallbearers, because we read that they just came to a halt. They, they stopped. They stopped the funeral procession immediately. So what was it? What did Jesus do that stunned everybody that it came to a halt? He touched the stretcher-like open coffin of the dead man. Why was that shocking? Because according to the law, Numbers 19, 11 through 22, 
anyone who touched a dead corpse or anything associated with that dead corpse would become ceremonially defiled and polluted. But that did not stop Jesus from touching this dead man's coffin because he understood that human need took precedence over mere ceremonial issues. And besides, he's God. Jesus could never be defiled by anything because God can't be defiled by anything. As theologian William Hendrickson put it, he said, the one who was able to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners without becoming contaminated would not suffer pollution either by touching this frame. On the contrary, instead of becoming defiled, he was now in the process of conquering death and defilement. So after touching the frame of the stretcher, Jesus directly addresses the young man by saying, young man, I say to you, arise, get up. And in response to Christ's authoritative word, immediately the dead man came alive, sat up in the coffin, and began to speak. It was as if the young man had just been asleep, and Jesus said, wake up. But he wasn't asleep. He was dead, fully dead. And Jesus just gave him life again. And the fact that he was now talking was proof to all that he was alive. Now, what he said, we all would like to know. I'd like to know. What do you say when you were dead and, you know, came back? Mom, you look good? I don't know what he would have said. Where am I? What? But regardless of what he said, after hearing this young man speak, we read that Jesus very tenderly gave him back to his mother. Now, folks, think about what we've just read here. Jesus told a man who had recently died to rise from the dead, and live again, and that's exactly what happened. Miraculously, life now surged again through his body, and he came alive. And the reason, and the sole reason this happened is because Jesus Christ is God, and therefore he has the power to give life. You see, no one else but God can raise someone from the, the dead. No one else. He's the only one who gives life. He's the only one who takes life. Even in the Old Testament where we read, for example, in 1 Kings 17 about the prophet Elijah raising the widow of Zarephath's son back to life, and then we read in 2 Kings chapter 4 about how the prophet Elisha, his successor, did the same thing in raising a woman's son back to life. Those miracles, note this, they were an answer to prayer. The prophets didn't do this. God did this in answer to the prophets praying to them. But with the widow of Nain's son, Jesus didn't pray. He didn't need to pray to God to raise the boy back to life. He just did the miracle himself because he is God. And notice, he did it just by speaking a word. He who brought the universe into existence by saying, let there be, and it was, he now brings life to this young man by simply saying, arise, and he arises. And what we see in this miracle is the almighty power of Jesus, that not even death, the king of terrors, the last enemy, can stand against his authoritative command. When he says arise from the dead, a dead corpse is compelled to arise. Folks, that's exactly what's going to happen on that day when all who are dead, physically dead, are commanded by Jesus to come alive in the sense of now being resurrected physically. 
Jesus said these words in John 5, 28 and 29. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. And those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. As one Bible teacher put it, he said, when the trumpet sounds in Christ's commands, there can be no refusal or escape. All must appear before his judgment bar in their bodies. All should be judged according to their works. Now, let me just clarify. When Jesus speaks of those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, he isn't saying that anyone can be saved by their good deeds, by their works. No, he simply means that those who have been saved will evidence that they've been saved, will evidence true salvation by the good deeds that reflect a transformed life. Now, listen, our Lord's divine power is not limited to raising people physically from the dead. His miraculous power also gives life, spiritual life, eternal life to those who were once dead in their sins and trespasses, namely all of us. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Did you get that? Before conversion, we weren't just a little sick We weren't dying. We were dead, unresponsive, couldn't care less about God, estranged from him, dead spiritually, no life in us spiritually. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. If the Bible stopped here, we would have no hope. We would all be doomed to an eternity of judgment forever. But it doesn't stop here. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, Even when we were dead, he brought life to us through regeneration and brought us to faith in Christ. This is the power of our Lord, to raise people from death, both physically and spiritually. That ought to be very encouraging to all of us. Because it means that Jesus has the power not only to give you spiritual life, and it is solely, totally of God, not of us, But also he has the power to give your loved ones life, spiritual life as well. Again, we read this from J.C. Ryle who said, Let us see in this mighty miracle a lively emblem of Christ's power to give life to those dead in sins. In him is life. He gives life to whom he will, John 5.21. He can raise to a new life souls that are now dead in worldliness and sin. He can say to hearts that are now corrupt and lifeless, Arise to repentance and live in the service of God. Let's never despair of any soul. Let's pray for our children and never lose heart. Our young men and our young women may be long traveling on the way to ruin, but let us pray on. Who can tell but he who met the funeral at the gates of Nain may yet meet our unconverted children and say with almighty power, young man, arise with Christ. Nothing is impossible. Amen. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus never gave a sermon at a funeral because, as I said, every funeral he ever attended, he stopped because he raised the deceased back to life. But 
what was the reaction of people who actually saw this? I mean, we're reading this 2,000 years later, but what, what was the reaction of the people who were there? What was the reaction of those who actually witnessed this miraculous raising of this young man from Nain? Well, we read this in verse 16. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Now, their first reaction was fear. Fear in what sense? In the sense of awe, in the sense of astonishment, because they recognized that God did this amazing miracle. God did it. And that's why we read that they began glorifying God, saying a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. In other words, they realized that they had experienced a visitation from God because only God could raise someone from the dead. They got that right. They were right about that. But though they recognized that God had done this miracle, they failed to see that the one who was in their presence, standing right in their midst, Jesus, was God himself. Notice how they referred to him. They referred to him as a great prophet, meaning that he's just like the prophets of old. I take it they're referring to Elijah and Elisha, who also were involved in raising sons back to, to life. But they were wrong. They were wrong because all they viewed Jesus as was another great prophet whom God had sent to his people. Nothing more. Nothing more. It never dawned on them that the one who was in their, their presence, who they could have touched, spoken to, was God, the living God in human flesh. Never dawns on them. The one raising this young man to life by his own power, not as a result of praying, as Elijah and Elisha had done. And so thinking that Jesus was this great new prophet whom God had sent to help his people, they began telling others all over Israel, as Luke tells us in the final verse, verse 17, this report concerning him went all out over Judea and all the surrounding districts. In other words, they, wherever they went in Israel, they told people about this great new prophet. How sad, though, that they failed to recognize the truth about Jesus. They thought highly of him, but they didn't think highly enough of him. He wasn't a prophet sent by God. He was God who had come in human flesh. You know, it's possible that some of you are like this. You think highly of Jesus. You even have great respect for him. Maybe even believing theologically the truth about him, that he is God. What you don't do is treat him as Lord and God, because you disregard his word. You live as if you were the final authority in your life, doing whatever you want to do without obeying his word, without opening his word, without contemplating what his word says. You do whatever you want to do. You're your own authority instead of him. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? What a simple and yet profound question why do you call me Lord and yet you don't treat me as Lord? If I'm your Lord, there's no question you do what I say. But that's not what you do. You call me Lord and then you do whatever you want to do. See, the only way to properly respond to Christ being Lord is to submit to him and his rule, his rightful rule over you. And that begins, that starts by trusting him for your salvation, not going your own way, but repenting of your sin trusting his death on the cross for you so that when you face death, you'll have the assurance that you'll be with him 
forever because he alone has the power over death. See, Jesus came to earth to live a righteous life, and he did, a perfectly righteous life. And then he offered that righteous life up to God on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners so that the moment you repent of your sin and trust him as your Lord and Savior, he takes his righteousness and he imputes it to your account. That's how he delivers you from the power of of death. Having paid for your sin and forgiven you of your sin, he then imputes his righteousness to you. So if you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about faith in Christ, then I would encourage you, just come up and see me at the close of the service and we'll arrange for that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this magnificent passage of Scripture. Lord, thank you for being who you are, for displaying your deity back then and now to, to us through sovereign, your sovereign arrangement of this encounter. No accidents, no chance meetings, nothing coincidental. You sovereignly predetermine all the events of our lives. And Lord, we thank you for demonstrating your divine compassion for this woman and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you continue to show us your compassion. I pray that we as a people would take our responsibility seriously and open your word to see what your word has to tell us, because that's how you comfort us in compassion. And Lord, thank you that you have the power over death. No believer ever needs to fear death, because you said it's finished In dying on the cross, you paid for the sins of all those who would believe in you. And I pray, Lord, I pray for your people to have hope and great assurance in you. And Lord, I pray, though, for those who don't know you, who may think they know you, but they don't, never repented, never really yielded their lives to you, never truly turned from their sin and trusted Christ. I pray that they would be convicted of their sin and that today would be the day of their salvation. So, Lord, use your word to accomplish all that needs to be accomplished, all that you've planned to accomplish today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.